Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, February 7th, 2021, we begin a new series titled Uncommon Joy, the Book of Philippians. Today's sermon, My Identity, God's Agenda, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Enjoy. our study of the book of Philippians, which you know, you've already heard we're calling Uncommon Joy. Now notice here that we did not say Uncommon Happiness. Uh, joy and happiness are not the same things. In fact, my guess is that if I would have taken the word happiness and inserted it in this, and we would have had that a part of the title, there would be a lot of people who would be interested in that because the idea of happiness is something that attracts all of us. Everybody wants to be happy. I mean, and the pursuit of happiness causes us to take up new hobbies and new, new toys and lifestyle changes and to read books and attend seminars and you know, download podcasts. And the problem though is, if whatever we're pursuing there does not sort of give us that perceived level of happiness that we think that we should get out of something, we tend to cut and run, right? I mean, it's true of all of us. I mean, how many of us have exercise bicycles around the house collecting dust? At some point, we thought that was gonna be a really good and, and great thing. It was gonna work, right? Sometimes it's even harder than that. You know, for many years, I did a lot of marital counseling and, and you know, invariably, you would get couples that would come in and after they would sort of share everything that was going on, the bottom line would come down to that they would say, I'm not happy. And in effect, what they're really saying is, God wants me happy. Which, to be honest, my answer never was accepted all that great, is I would say, I don't see any place in the scripture that says God wants you happy, God wants you holy. And usually happiness follows with the holiness. Ultimately, though, so many people would just end up you know, getting a divorce because of those that simple word, I'm not happy. Sometimes it happens with a church. Sometimes people will go, well, I'm just not happy with the direction of the church and, and I don't like you know, the direction that you're heading on this. And, and really what they're saying is, well, all the elders and all the pastors must be wrong and I must be right because I heard something on Facebook. Maybe God's trying to say, we're gonna make an adjustment in your life. You know, happiness is fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow, but joy is different. At least biblically it is. And that's why this letter to the Philippians is so important and relevant for this moment in history. This past year has been a roller coaster ride in many, many ways, and not the good kind of roller coaster that we all want to raise our hands on and yell. I mean, this roller coaster everybody wants to get off. What's going to happen, you know, with our nation and our economy and, you know, sickness here or in restrictions on this and who won this and who didn't win this or who's being truthful, who's not. I mean, all these different things just create this huge mess inside of us that creates an unhappiness inside us, yet it doesn't have to mean that we have to lose joy. Paul is gonna mention joy 13 times here in Philippians and yet the circumstances were not what you would typically call joyful. Paul actually writes this letter from a Roman prison. Philippians is one of four prison epistles. 
Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. Now we know that because not only does Paul say, talk about his chains, but he even references the fact in chapter one, verse 13, that the whole imperial guard is there around him, that they were all stationed in Rome. Then he mentions in chapter four, verse 22, that Caesar's household even sends you his greetings and they resided in Rome and Paul was in prison in Rome. So we know that it all sort of fit together like that. So it wasn't a good situation for Paul. But it also wasn't a very good situation for the Philippians. Historically, we know that the Philippian church was incredibly poor. Unbelievably poor. I mean, so much so that Paul's not only surprised that they gave, but he's actually surprised that they kept on giving all through his ministry. Beyond that, they were also starting to be persecuted by forces outside of the church for their, their faith in Jesus. And then they also had this other group of people that were trying to infiltrate the church and bring you know, false teaching with them in. And then on top of that, you had these two prominent women in the church that were not getting along and they were dividing and really sort of challenging the unity of the body. And yet Paul will describe them as a church full of people who bring him joy. Not a fleeting happiness, not something controlled by circumstances, joy. Joy is different. In fact, let me give you, let me give you a little definition of joy. If you're gonna write something down, I'd encourage you to write this one down. Joy is a settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life both for his glory and for your good at the same moment. Let me say that one more time. Joy is a settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life both for his glory and for my good at the same moment. And here's the good news, it's available to anybody who trusts in Jesus. Now, Acts chapter 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit led Paul and Silas to Philippi. They had to cross over the Aegean Sea. They stayed there for a while to start a church. In fact, they stayed there for a long time. It took a while, really, to start a church. You see, Paul is not uh, some guy that's just like writing in and he gives the gospel and he says, okay, how many of you believe what I just preached? And everybody raised their hands and he goes, oh, that's awesome. Good luck. He doesn't do that. He recognizes that there were all these young believers now are gonna be prime fodder for counterfeit philosophies and conspiracies that were gonna be rising up. And so he wants to see them grounded in God's word. To do that, it takes time. They had to build up spiritual depth. They had to have maturity. And by the way, if you've ever had to walk that road of maturity, it's a difficult road to walk. Because invariably you have to get knocked down a few times and then learn to get back up. They had to learn servanthood. They had to develop spiritual leadership, which means they had to be consistent. And so Paul spent a lot of time with them and he saw them grow and respond to the difficulties and the challenges and that created a love for the church inside of him. But it also created a love of him by the Philippian believers. All of that resulted in the Philippians having a special place in Paul's heart and a source of great joy to him, an uncommon joy. Now this letter is also extremely Jesus-focused. There are 104 verses here in the book of Philippians. 
51 of them are references to Jesus by name. That tells you a lot about the emphasis here. The letter will also speak to the attitude of the Christ followers. The truth is, this book is loaded. As Brendan mentioned earlier, we would really encourage you, this is a great time for you to you know, consider joining a small group and taking that next step of connecting. Now, let's jump into the passage here together and we'll get a few more answers as we go. Let's read verses one through seven. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, make our, you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So the passage starts off, and the first thing it does, it tells you who the author is. It's Paul. Now, even though Timothy is also mentioned here too, he would not be like a co-author, he would be a scribe. He would write down the things that Paul would tell him. And the reason why we know that is because historically we know that Paul probably had an eyesight issue and was very difficult for him to practice law, you know, writing for a long time. But there are times he will stop and he'll say, see, I write it by my own hand. This, that wasn't normal though. Now, in verses one through seven, Paul's gonna give us four really foundational and important truths that I want you to hold on to this morning. Now, I wanna give you, some, I'm gonna do something a little bit different. Normally, when you teach through Hebrew Old Testament literature, if you go like to some of the wisdom literature, like the book of Psalms and Proverbs, they give you the answer right up front, and then they, they stop and they start building on it afterwards. New Testament is not typically like that. Greco-Roman thinking was you built upon something and then came to the truth down at the bottom. But I wanna make sure you catch this truth, so I'm gonna explain it to you both ways here because I want you to see the significance of what this is really all about. I know that we're not in the Old Testament, but I'll do it anyway. The truth here is, is that my identity in Jesus and God's agenda, in other words, his plan for me have to match up. Okay, make sure you catch what I'm saying here. My identity in Jesus, who I see me as in Jesus, and God's plan, his agenda, they have got to match up. Now, he's gonna tell us four ways they're gonna do that. First of all, he's gonna tell us that we're meant to be servants. Then he says that God sees us as saints. Then he's gonna tell us that we need to share in ministry and that finally God himself will provide our security. So let's go to the first one here. We are to be servants. Go back to verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now notice here that Paul does not introduce himself as an apostle. He is an apostle, he's the primary writer of the New Testament. 
He's a big deal. And yet he doesn't say that, not only because they knew who he was already, but he says it because he wants to emphasize the fact that both he and Timothy are servants. This is way more than just simply a greeting. The, the, the term servants here is sort of a revelation of how Paul sees himself. It's, an, it's, it's saying that my identity is I'm a servant. But he's also stressing his attitude towards God's agenda, God's plan for the whole thing because what he's saying is, God, I understand also what you want from me and that's what I want. Now that's a really big deal because we have a lot of people today in America that will say things like, well, you know, I have an affection, I really do have an affection for God. People will even say, I love God. I've always loved the Lord. I've loved the Lord since I was really tiny. I mean, I've always loved God. Others will say, well, I really want to know him better. I mean, that's why I'm here. Some will say, well, I'm actually a servant. I really am a servant. The question is, what do you do? What do you actually do? To be a servant is to actually make yourself available to really serve. Serving costs us something, it's a sacrifice. It requires that we submit our whole lives to Jesus, our time, our talents, our treasures, everything has to be sort of laid out and put before God to be on his agenda, his plan. And by the way, that's the battleground that every single believer has. I want want you to hear what I'm gonna say here. The, The biggest battleground you have in life is not the world or the enemy. The biggest battleground you have in life is gonna take place right up here and it's gonna be, am I gonna be on my agenda or am I gonna be on God's agenda? That's the issue. You know, when it comes to serving, there are really only two types of people, those who serve and those who feel like they should be served. Being a servant is way more than just a declaration. Servanthood requires a a heart change that when you and I come to Christ and we trust in Christ, we experience that heart change. Romans chapter six, verse six, six tells us that in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed from slavery to sin and because on the cross, Jesus paid sin's price. That's what 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23 tells us, that we are bought with a price. Servanthood also requires humility because somewhere along the line, someone might actually treat you like a servant. I'll never forget that uh, the old saying that I had heard years and years ago is that everybody wants to be a servant until someone treats you like one. It's really true. Listen, it's not hard to tell who the servants are, who is and who isn't a servant. I mean, if you think about your small group, watch what happens when the group gathers. Just for one time, just stop and watch. Who does what? You'll be, it's easy to tell who the people are serving. They don't do it so people will notice, they just do. A servant is a person who puts others before them, puts the master before them. They realize this is what God has made them for. 
Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God appointed beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's, that word there for workmanship is the word poime, it's where we get poem from. We're God's poem, his work of art, his outstanding you know, statement that he's going to make in our work. We're created to be servants. Now the second thing he's gonna tell us here is also in verse one, and that is that God sees us as saints. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now Paul isn't saying here that Philippi had assembled a collection of super Christians. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that every single believer is a saint. Now that's not typically what we think of when we think of saints. Normally, you know, in a human way, when we think of a saint, we think of someone who's done something just spectacularly unselfish and, and helped lots and lots of people. But that's not what this word here, this word saint here is the Greek word hagios. It means one who is set apart. Very important you catch this. You can't do that. That's impossible for you to do. But God can. God sets us apart. It's only in Jesus that that can happen and it reflects here when he writes this down that I've been set apart, you have been set apart. What he's basically saying is it reflects our identity in Christ. But it also reflects how differently the Bible and the world would see a word like that. The Bible tells us that we are saints because of what God has done. For by grace you are saved through faith not of works, lest that anyone should boast. That's what the word hagios means. Sainthood then is 100% about whose we are and 0% about what we've done. Do you realize who the Bible tells us we are in Jesus? I mean, I love earlier as we stopped and Tim read through some of the things that the scriptures say about who we are. Ephesians chapter one, verse five tells us that we're adopted as sons and daughters. First Corinthians 6.20 says that we're bought with a price. John 1.12 tells us that I'm a child of God. First Corinthians 3.16 says I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us here in verse one, there were saints. Now, let me be really clear here, so, because somebody will ask me after this. Saints, uh, saints are not someone you pray to. They're not someone that's gonna help you get into heaven. But a saint is someone that you might emulate your life after. That's why the issue of discipleship comes up. That's why you'll see Paul at times say, look, do what I do. He's willing to put himself out there and say, I'm gonna live this life, you follow me. If it's confusing, do what I do. That's what discipleship really is all about. Now, verse one keeps going here because Paul now is gonna mention the overseers and the deacons. Those are two offices within the church. The overseers would be the elders. The elders are those that are in charge of the spiritual oversight of the church. Very important you understand, Highlands is an elder-run church. We do not take massive votes of things. There are elders within the church that love God and they have a spiritual oversight of the church. The second group here was the deacons. That word just means servants. 
And by the way, these two groups would be vital to a church working. A church cannot survive without those two groups. And way more time consuming than gospel work. This is the idea of raising up leaders and building spiritual depth and discernment and it's discipleship. It's intentionally multiplying Christ-like followers. Now, verse two, here he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be a pretty standard greeting, especially to other people who would understand, or the believers, excuse me, that would understand what grace is. Now, the third point he's gonna make here in verses three through five is that we're to share in ministry. Let me read that again. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because you of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul reminds them that he's praying for them that they bring him great joy and that's a great example of Paul praying for other people. Remember, Paul's in jail and you know, very often we're going through a difficult circumstance in life, it seems like the only person we can pray for is us. But when there's a joy inside and a trusting of the Lord, it's possible like him, to be praying for other people as well, and he's a great model of that. Verse four, he tells us the Philippian believers, the saints here, that they have made prayer actually a joy for him. Well, how? Verse five says, because they partnered with him in the gospel ministry. They partnered with Paul and Timothy. That, that, that word, partnership, is a really important word. Partnering means here at this time that they gave their time, their talents, and their treasures. Perhaps after Paul went into Philippi, preached the gospel, and started leading people along and, and really discipling them and building them up, and he'd say, you know, I'm gonna go to Thyatira now and share the gospel there. Anybody wanna come? And there were people that would said yes. And they would go and they would also share the gospel. Or maybe as someone is sharing the gospel from up front, maybe there was somebody who was on the side and someone says, I have a question. Oh, they're there to answer it. They came and they used their talents and their abilities, their time. They gave of all those things. They would go in and they would, perhaps they would do music or they, they would help build something or repair something, just like people do today when they go on mission trips. And many of you have been on those trips. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I love the fact that we mentioned there that we got the mission trips going down to Mexico to build houses. Rocky Point is a really great area until you move away from the ocean. And then you'll find poverty. I mean, so much poverty that you'll find people living in cardboard boxes and tents. And one of the most amazing things that can happen that we can do with our church partnership there is to go down and build a house for a family of you know, five or six people. That's an amazing thing to happen. Imagine going to a family and being able to provide, and by the way, this house is 11 by 20. Many of you have bedrooms that are bigger than that. And they're ecstatic. It's always a time of weeping and celebration and joy. It's one of the most, it, there's so much joy and partnership in, in moments like that. Obviously, these people would have partnered with their treasure too. I mean, they gave financially. Paul's already mentioned that. 
Remember, Paul and Timothy still had to eat and to sleep. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, you'll find that Lydia even gets involved immediately after coming to faith. Acts 16, verses 14 and 15 say, and one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon them. In other words, immediately, the first thing that happens when she comes to faith is she realized I should be sharing in ministry too. Paul calls it a partnership in the gospel. It's so interesting. This word partnership is the word koinonia. You ever heard that word before? It's the same word we use for fellowship. That's what it means. To partner in ministry is to fellowship together in ministry. That's exactly what Paul is, is saying here. He tells us that. If you go over to chapter four here in Philippians and look at verse 15, he says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership or koinonia with me in giving and receiving except you alone. That's a big deal. You know, at Highlands, we partner with lots of agencies to serve people in all sorts of ways. For example, in Haiti. Let me, let me just say, how many of you have been to Haiti on one of our trips? Okay, I gotta tell you something, it's amazing. You wanna experience the joy of the Lord? You wanna feel what it means to have koinonia with the Lord, to experience God being right there with you and you doing exactly what God does? We partner with an organization there called Chances for Children. Their basic thing is to help children get to the place where some of the kids can be adopted, but some of them can't. And they, they still stay in these, these large uh, areas out here that, that, that you have all these feeding programs. And when you go, you get a chance to go to one of these feeding programs, and I'll tell you something, there's something mind-blowing about the fact that you walk into this little village and they'll bring a child up that's brand new to the feeding program and they've got a bloated belly and half of their hair has fallen out and you get a chance to provide food for them? There's nothing there that says, oh, I wish I would have spent the money and gone to Hawaii. Nobody says that. You know what people say? Can't wait till I get to come back again. There's joy in partnership. We partner with Phoenix Rescue Mission and House of Refuge and House of Hope and helping men and women whose lives have gotten you know, disorganized enough and, and faulty enough that they need help in life. And so Highlands not only helps them financially, but we have men and women that disciple people, men and women there. No one stops and says, well, this isn't worth my time. I wish I was at home watching ESPN. Why? Because I'm right in the middle of what God is doing and I sense it, I feel it. I, am, I have fellowship with the Lord and with the ministry right there, right then. God is at work. Convoy of hope. They do disaster relief. You know, when Katrina hit as a church, you know, really, we had a lot of people calling the church saying, hey, um, what do we do? Can we bring stuff down? Are we gonna put it in a truck and take it there? We didn't know what to do. I mean, Arizona's a long way from Louisiana. What were we supposed to do? We found Convoy of Hope, large Christian organization. When, it, when something like that happens, they're the first one on the ground. They're, they beat the U.S. government there. 
more money got, got dropped off and used in the right way by a convoy of hope than the federal government provided for Katrina. You know why? Because churches around the country said, we're gonna partner with them. We believe them. We trust in them. There is joy in that. Many of you know Grant and Christiane Walsh, a part of our fellowship. Uh, they just recently went back to Thailand. Do you know what they do in Thailand? They rescue women out of the sex slave trade. That's what they do. They get them out, they lead them to Jesus, they provide a safe place for them, they get them a job, they help them get back into a normal life. You give to Highlands, you partner with them. There's joy in that. Verse five here, Paul reminds them that they didn't just do it once, but the Philippian church did it over and over again from the first day until now. There is just amazing joy in partnering in the gospel ministry. Do not miss that. Now, the fourth thing you see here is that God himself will provide our security. Look at verses six and seven. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, all, you all, for all of you, partakers with me of, the, of grace. This is really hard with my mouth right now, forgive me. You are all partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. The good work here that he talks about is that God starts a work of salvation and he completes it through sanctification and glorification. He doesn't stop. Now, verse six is gonna tell you four things and we'll do this fast. The first one is this, salvation is a God thing. The passage says that he who began a good work in you, it begins, salvation begins and ends with God. Romans chapter three says, no one seeks for God. Salvation is holy God's work from beginning until I stand before him in glory. Ephesians chapter one, verse four tells us that he chose me in him before the foundation of the world. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. It does not say, oh, God knew beforehand that I would choose him, so he just went ahead and responded. It does not say that. The passage is clear, he chose me, and if you're a believer, he chose you too, before anything was created. Now, can I explain that? No. I can't. Salvation is one of those mysteries that God alone will one day explain in heaven, and I think it's gonna be a glorious day that we'll be able to stand before the Lord, and he'll lay it all out, and we'll go, I get it, finally. But I don't think my noggin is big enough to catch that now, because he doesn't lay it all out for us. He just told us it's so, and so I believe it. We believe that by faith. The second thing here is salvation is clearly seen as a good thing. Paul refers to it there as a good thing, and that good thing should lead to worship inside us. In fact, I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come back and, and join me. That good thing should lead to worship inside us. We ought to be thankful. The third thing here is that salvation is more than God just saving us. He's actually growing us. The passage says here that he will bring it to completion. In other words, he tends to grow us. 
Romans chapter eight, verse 29 tells us that, that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He's going to grow us. The fourth thing is that salvation is also a sure thing. Paul makes it clear that God will bring it to completion. God will finish what he has started. Verse seven here, Paul tells them that he tells them all of this out of love, that he shares it with them. But here's the bottom line. As a Christ follower, and I don't want you to let yourself off the hook here. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a Christ follower. Your identity has got to match up with God's agenda, his plan. That's the issue here. You have got to be willing to say, yes, God created me to be a servant and I'm going to be a servant. That God has made me a saint, not because I deserve it, but because of what he has done that I ought to be sharing in ministry because that's the whole reason why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. And that I am 100% secure in Jesus Christ, not because of me, but because of him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would so move in our hearts that we would desire to be on track completely with you. That we would not allow our identity to get off course and away from your agenda for our lives, God. That our desire would be to be the men and women you've called us to be. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Listen, I... I want you to know something. I, I love you guys. I really do. I'm going to ask you to do something different this week. Would you examine who you think you are? Does it fit with God's agenda for your life? If it does, praise God. You ought to be discipling people. If it doesn't, change. Ask God to change you, change your desires, your heart that you would want to be the man or the woman that God has called you to be. So go out this week and do that. God bless you. I love you all.